Reality Escape Pod is made possible by Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need to get away from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is Alon Lee from Exploding Kittens. He's a game designer. He has worked on all manner of games in tons of different media. Welcome, Alon. We're so glad to have you. Thanks. It's really exciting to be here for the maiden voyage. Thank you for being a guinea pig. <laughs> a lot has probably worked on more things that you use or consume or play that you you didn't even realize that I didn't even realize. I keep learning more and more about you. I love it. I'm such a man of mystery. This is very exciting for me to realize. Alan, you began your career as a character designer for Industrial Light and Magic and worked on things like Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. When creating characters, what is a nuance that most game designers typically miss? <laughs> All right, you promised me you would ask me questions I've never heard before. You have so far succeeded in that endeavor. Well done. All right, let me let me set the stage a little bit here. I worked at Industrial Light and Magic as an intern, meaning my job was to create all the characters that nobody else wanted to create or work on all the parts that nobody else wanted to work on. For example, one of the first things they threw at me was to animate the connective tissue in Jar Jar Binks's neck. So you're responsible for Jar Jar. <laughs> okay, let me say that again. The connective tissue in his neck. So uh, yes, I, I worked on a bunch of character design, but it would absolutely not be fair for me to say I'm responsible for any of it. Literally the intern doing the grunt labor, doing what they tell me to do. What I will say about that job, more than any job I've ever had, made me realize that I want to tell stories. I remember when we finished working on uh, Men in Black, I worked on a few little minor characters in the background. After the premiere, I just went out, treat myself to ice cream. You know, I'm like this 19-year-old kid, doesn't know anybody in town. And so I go into the local ice cream shop and there's two kids in front of me, uh, like seven-year-olds, and they had been at the screening as well. And they were just talking up a storm about how great the movie was. And for just a sentence, they brought up one of the characters that I worked on as being like noteworthy. And I, it was the greatest high ever. It was all the wonderful chemicals in my brain just went into overdrive. And I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. I want to tell interesting creative stories using technology and elicit exactly that response in audience members. Legendary game designer Jordan Weissman is creator of some of my favorite games but has also been your mentor for many years. Mm. What's the most valuable correction that he has ever suggested to a game that you've designed or your approach to creating games? Wow, that's another good one. All right, two for two here. Okay, so Jordan Weissman is the smartest person I know. He's been my mentor since I met him. He was the creative director at the Xbox at uh, Microsoft, and they hired me to help launch the very first Xbox, and um, they hired me as a producer. So my job at first was just make sure the trains are all running on time. Check in with the studios, um, make sure that all the documents were where they needed to be, the shared drives were all set, all the, the very procedural elements of a game. 
after working with me for a few months, Jordan pulled me aside and he said two important things. He said, one, you're a horrible producer. But then he followed it up with number two, which was, but you're an incredible game designer and we're going to switch your roles. Because what he had noticed is um, I just couldn't help myself but touch up the game design docs that I was managing and say, hey, but what if we tried this and what if we do this and this other thing? And it was really randomizing the teams, but he still loved the ideas. And so he switched me over to game design. He actually made me a lead game designer for the very first Xbox, which was very exciting for me. And I think I'll tell you the best advice he ever gave me was when you're working with giant teams and there's not enough time and the deadline is just the deadline is the most terrifying thing because you have to finish and so you you're forced to delegate and delegation is really hard when you have a vision in your head you understand how you want a thing to operate the other people you work with inevitably don't do the thing that you would have done if you had time to do everything yourself. That's the nature of delegation. And it used to drive me insane. And I used to tear people's work apart and redo it over and over again, so much so that I eventually installed a bed in my office because I realized I'm just never going home. I'm just going to stay here and do everybody's work. And he pulled me aside and he said a very important line. He said, other people's work is not worse. It's just other people's work. And it took me a, yeah, probably a year, maybe two years to really understand what that meant and be able to find the beauty in other people's work and, and acknowledge that I have to get away from this notion that my version is the best version. My version is just my version. And I like it because it's my version. That doesn't mean it's the best. I work with such incredible, talented, smart people that I need to look at their work as other people's work that is potentially better than anything I could produce on my own. And that's really kind of stuck with me all these years. It's really changed the way I think about game design. As a founder who has recently kind of expanded the team that we have at Room Escape Artist, working on content, working on podcasts, working on the convention, that speaks to me a lot. The first couple of people who had started working with us, Steve and Sarah, who've been writing with us for years now, they went through the ringer with us <laughs> as we had to slowly prying our fingers off of every single thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. When I first started at the Hive Mind, that's the first thing they said to us is they were like, we are having the hardest time letting go of this, inviting so many new people in to help out, but it's, it's worked out. <laughs> It's such an important skill. Like it's a muscle that you don't start off with and you have to exercise it to get better at it. Otherwise, there's just no way you're going to be able to create giant projects. The other thing that was really interesting for both Lisa and myself was that we both do this professionally outside of Room Escape Artist really effectively. It was just this was our baby and we were especially loathe to release anything yeah. yeah but once we started to do it that was really when the magic started happening yeah for the convention for the hive mind and we're really thrilled with the results i, I think that's phenomenal advice yeah it really stuck with me with games like the beast and i love bees you're generally credited as one of the co-creators of the entire alternate reality games or arg format what do you feel are the building blocks of an amazing arg I'm a firm believer that there's actually nothing new out there. When I think about alternate reality games and the work that I did with Jordan Weissman, who helped 
guide my process, guide my thinking about what does it mean to play a game in the real world? What does it mean for a character to call you on the phone or send you a physical email or, or meet you on a street corner? Like, what, what does all of that insanity mean? Can we even just kind of go over what exactly yeah. is an alternate reality game? Because I have not played one yet. And when I first discovered puzzles and escape rooms, I Love Bees was one of the first things someone had mentioned to me to look up to get into. And I still don't know what it is exactly. I love that. When we were building the first few of these, we had no idea what to call them, by the way. They were just the things we were working on. Typically, the way that I think of them is if you think of any form of entertainment as a picture, that picture is painted on a canvas. If you play a mobile game, the canvas is your cell phone. If you play an escape room, the canvas is the physical facility. When you're playing an alternate reality game, the canvas is your life. What that means is as you experience the story, the character is you, which means as you experience the story, let's say you watch a video on a web page. If you see a character on that video pick up a phone to make a phone call, it is very likely that the cell phone in your pocket is about to start ringing because that character is calling you and sending you emails. Calls coming from inside the house. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the, the central notion behind an alternate reality game is it's your reality, it's your life, it's your phone, it's your computer, it's your two legs that you're gonna walk down the street with, but it's a slightly alternate version because we're all going to accept a premise that is we're going to suspend our disbelief and say, yes, there is a murder that you have to help solve. Yes, aliens did just creep out of the sky and are now uh, invading the planet. Once you agree to that slight leap of faith, then you're allowed to use everything in your world to facilitate the telling of that story. So that's what an alternate reality game is. That's wild. I always think about like in those movies where you see the door opening with the glowing light and I'm like, would I actually go through that door? Right. Would I ever discover uh, Narnia like in my real life? <laughs> so people get a slight chance to make that decision here. We actually asked a very similar question. If we call a player, if we call anybody, are they going to answer the phone? And if we say, hey, I'm a character from the game, have a conversation with me, are they going to participate? Straight to voicemail. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. I don't right. numbers anymore. Exactly, right. Um, well, this was a different time, right? This was like, God, 20 years ago now. The idea was, well, no one's ever seen anything like this. Would it work? And we, we all kind of sat around scratching our heads thinking, there's only one way to answer this question, and that's build the damn thing and find out. And it turns out, at least at the time, the answer was hell yes. Millions of people are willing to say, yes, I will answer that phone. I'll reply to that email. I'll, I'll walk down the street and meet you on the street corner to get the next piece of the story. Were people actually doing that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I can tell. Oh, man, we had, uh, I'll tell you one, I'll tell you one, one, one crazy story. My favorite story about this. We were doing a promotion, very first alternate reality game for Steven Spielberg's movie, AI. I wanted to do a physical event because we had had a few actors meet players from time to time at like conventions and things like that. I picked our three most active cities, Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago. We had hundreds of thousands of players in each of those cities. One night, I rented out a bar in each of those cities and... Uh, we hired actors to essentially host a miniature murder mystery. And everyone showed up and there were characters that they recognized from the website and the videos. And at one point at each bar, a character got murdered. And then the players had to spring into action and find the clues. And they had to call each other across the country and pass information back and forth to figure it out. Imagine a cool version of a murder mystery told across the United States. 
That all worked great in, in Los Angeles and Chicago. Character died at the right time. They found all the clues. They passed all the right clues. Everyone had an incredible time. The internet went insane because they were seeing live streaming video from these locations and interpreting the puzzles and blah, 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 all the stuff, all the good stuff. New York, it did not go that way. What happened in New York, the actor died, right? Dead on the floor. They're finding the clues. Everyone found the clues. They passed them around. Great. Yay. Hooray. We did it. Everybody goes home. But here, it's much less clear, right? Where are the actual edges of this thing? Here's a body on the floor. What if we go pinch that body? Like, you know, he was alive a second ago. And so they started messing with the actor. And of course, the actor woke up and said, listen, game over. Go home because I'm going to go home too. Thanks for playing. And the players said, oh my God, he's an android. <laughs> and, and the actor's like, no, my name's John. I got hired to play this part, but the part's over. Please go home now. And they said, oh my God, this game just got so intense. And so eventually they had to escort these players out. And then the actor changed, washed the blood off his face, went outside and they were waiting for him. And again, he told them, we're done. Like seriously, go home. They followed him down the street onto the subway and sat down next to him, just staring at him, taking pictures. And he said, seriously enough, like, I, I don't know what to tell you. How do I indicate to you that this is, this is done? And they're like, oh my God, this game just gets cooler and cooler and cooler. And then he got off the subway and he called the police and the police showed up and the police grabbed these players and started questioning them. And the players just were like, oh no, this is the coolest <laughs> game ever. Like this is, <laughs> I cannot believe they hired actors to play police officers. I cannot believe we were supposed to go in this subway. This is the most immersive, incredible thing ever. And finally, when like the police were actually going to arrest them, they finally said, oh yeah, we're way outside the theater now. We've done something seriously wrong. It was a really interesting experience because nothing like this had really ever been done. And we had not done a very good job of setting the ground rules about here's the borders of this thing. There's no safe word. Where's the safe word? There's no safe word. Exactly. So we did a ton of stuff like that and learned a lot as we went. But the only way to learn, right, is build it, mess the whole thing up horribly and do it better the next time. I'm actually curious, after that incident in New York, do you now feel like you need to set some type of parameters to define the borders a little bit more? Yeah. For all the games after that one, we were always really explicit. We would always have um, an in-game voice and an out-of-game voice. The out-of-game voice would be very clear. Here is where you can find the next bit of information. Here is when it will be delivered. Here are the websites that are in-game. And everything else is out-of-game. And if you have any questions, ask me. I am not a character. I am here to help you play the game. I am the exit door. And it became a really important element of all gameplay. In escape rooms, we're constantly advising escape room creators to make sure that their game master is truly separate and safe, that they're not delivering puzzles and that anything that they tell them is true and not a challenge. Yeah. And one of the biggest problems that we see is when a game contradicts the rules that you were told by the game master, it calls into question literally everything that game master ever told you, including all of the basic safety rules. It's so frustrating. When games break those rules, it is infuriating. Can I tell you my favorite story about that? Please do. <laughs> 
I think it was in New York. They did the normal safety spiel. Don't break anything. And if it's up over your eye level, don't reach up because nothing up there is in game. Respect our stuff. Minimal amount of force is necessary on everything. We're like, great. Yeah, we've heard all this a million times. We start doing the room and there's a lock on a door and I can't find the key to this lock anywhere. We are truly stumped. And someone finds bolt cutters <laughs> chained to the wall. And we're like, oh God, the, the chain is long enough that we can bring the bolt cutters over to that lock and actually cut the lock. But they clearly told us, don't break our stuff. And we're staring at these bolt cutters, which are so enticing because why else would they put the bolt cutters in the room? So finally I take the bolt cutters and I go over to the lock and I, I announce myself. Like I know they're listening and can see us. And I was like, listen, game masters, we need a little advice here. I'm going to break your lock right now because I can, and it seems obvious, but you told me not to. So I'm just going to tell you out loud, I'm about to break your lock. Please do something to stop me if I'm not supposed to break your lock. And it was silent. So I did it. I squeezed the bolt cutters and it cut right through the lock and it fell to the floor and we kept going. And then I said, okay, now I'm going to use the bolt cutters to cut the chain holding them to the wall so I can use them everywhere in this room. <laughs> And then the door burst open and the game master ran in and said, no, 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 no. So they had to eventually stop us. But man, it was so frustrating that we had to check in with them that way. It felt broken. That game eventually adapted by mounting the chain to the bottom of a metal garbage can so that the bolt cutters can't reach back around to hit ah, its own chain. Right. Played that same game after it had been adapted so you couldn't do that. Once you cut it, you went into a crawl space. Yeah. And when you came out on the other side, the very first thing as you're emerging from the crawl space that you see was a fire extinguisher. <laughs> have this distinctive memory of looking at it and wondering, do any of the rules still apply? Yeah. My technique is similar to yours. I will announce to the game master, I'm about to do this thing in five seconds unless you intervene. But you shouldn't have to do that. What a broken design. Like, that doesn't feel good. We're not playing a game. We're not immersed in story anymore. Now we're, now we're playing this weird metagame that nobody enjoys. That has always been my issue with the destructible puzzle. Yeah. People who love it feel like it's a really immersive moment because it creates these visceral moments. But for me, it breaks immersion because as soon as I have to question whether I should do something, that is a clear reminder that I'm in a game, yep. which means that I clearly no longer immersed. And then everything after that, you have to ask yourself, is this normal rules or is this special rules? It defeats the whole purpose of an escape room, which is using your wits to escape. I could have just busted down the door with my damn shoulder if I really was going to yeah, prove right. it. Oh, what a right? great point. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Rules are really important. And when they think they're being all crafty and clever by saying, ooh, we've, we've eliminated a rule, they haven't eliminated that one rule. They've eliminated all rules. And they're just, they're not aware of that. And it's so frustrating. If you want to push the boundaries really hard, make it the last thing the players do. Yeah. So that there isn't the cascading ramification of what does this mean for the rest of the game? Because the game is over. Yeah. As an escape room player, you have an interesting post-game audio review ritual. Tell us what this is and how it came about. When I first got into escape rooms, I, I realized that I would I would do like five or six in a day because they were new and exciting and <laughs> it was so cool that we got to just go from room to room. I realized that like 
these like so many people have put so much effort into these things and I wasn't properly appreciating them. It started out just me wanting to talk to people about the rooms that we did. And then I realized that if I put some format to it, then as we scheduled rooms, I would enforce this notion that you were not going to schedule room after room after room. We must have at least 20 minutes in between so that there's time for this thing, this conversation we're going to have. And I'm going to record that conversation. The basic format is everyone has to give the room four different ratings. One through five, what did you think of the puzzles? What did you think of the mechanics in the room, like the special effects, the moving walls, the lasers, you know, things like that? What did you think of the look and feel of the room? How well was it set decorated? And then one through five, what did you think of the story? And we found that in having a discussion and forcing people to say out loud a number for each of those, we have the most amazing conversation about the room, about our experience, about what we liked, about what we didn't like, and we get to relive it. And for the terrible rooms, we get to scream and yell and, and have a little venting session. And for the great rooms, we get to just sing their praises. And I record all these. And I, I literally have, I think, almost 500 recordings at this point. No idea what to do with them. Never publish them anywhere. They're all sitting on a, on a Google Drive that will probably be there forever. But the thing that I'm just in love with is this idea that the room does not have to end when we walk out of the room. That's exactly how we feel. We just came up with a different method. We have a notebook. Lisa takes notes. We always put time after the game. We try not to go immediately into another room unless it's something like Evil Genius, where the games are designed to be played one after the other. Yep. We try to have a meal afterwards. We ultimately spend more time with the memory of these games than we do in them. <laughs> it's fun to kind of solidify that memory. Yeah, I agree. So one of the great shames of escape rooms is it's like Fight Club. You can't really talk about it because you don't want to ruin the, you know, the surprises are the best part for other people. So I play pretty regularly with the same four people. And we realized immediately that if we protect spoilers, we actually can't have a conversation. So one of the beautiful parts about these conversations is we're just talking to us and we spoil everything because the goal is not to entice people to do the room the goal is not to like build a commercial or a, a warning to avoid a room the goal is just for us to recall and recount and re-experience that room and I, I just think they're really beautiful like I, I don't know that anyone would else would ever enjoy listening to them but man, I just have so much fun making them I would enjoy listening to them <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you access to the drive if you want. It is really overwhelming, though. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the reason why, like, David and I wanted to do this podcast, because when I first discovered Escape Rooms, I immediately, I'm like, where can I find other people to talk about this amazing yeah. thing with, right? Like, I want to hear, like, movie recaps or whatever. Like, I want to hear people recap some of my favorite rooms and hear them break it down and hear their point of view. And it's such a shame that so much time and effort does go into creating these things, and you can only ever go the one time. Yep. And on top of that, you're limited with time. So you don't get to sit and explore and really truly appreciate every detail that, that really is put into these things. I always know a room is going to be a poor experience when you walk in and in the lobby are pictures of the, the teams with the top times. <laughs> yeah. When they value speed runs that much, I know that this is going to be a bad room. Yeah, it's a good canary. It's really unfortunate. And, and I, I get it, like for their business model, they really have to push people through. But I really enjoy the rooms where they're like, you know what? 
if the hour mark hits and you're not done, just stay in there. We love our content so much and we want you to love it that just get all the way through. That's what's most important to us. Those are the real gems. There's a company that was considering doing almost a video game type model where you have save points and it's like a continuous story. So basically you're buying time. You're not buying the room. You're like, I want an hour to just play around in this room and get through as much of the story as I can. And then when mm. that time is up, you save, you know, and then you can keep continuing on with the story. That oh, way you don't go that's so smart. That's really smart. I would love that. I get really excited by the concept. I also get really nervous about the concept because it's one of these things that if it's done well, it'll be magical. And if it's done poorly, it will feel like we're back in the 80s with coin eating <laughs> video game that are just designed to vacuum up your money. Yeah. They'll just put small things that are just time wasters. Yeah. <laughs> Practically speaking, I guess you'd pick a save point and then the game master would just know these are the resets for that particular save point, right? Yeah. It sounds so difficult to reset a room to a certain save point for every, you know, that's different. I guess it would depend on how much of it is being driven by digital tech versus analog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Physical, yeah, the physicality of a reset of a, of a save point is really complicated. We can tell the order that a company made their games by how much of a reset there's going to be at the end. <laughs> if you go and you play like the, a company's first three games, the first game has like a 40 minute reset. There's just tons yep. of little things yep. all over yep. the place. And the second game has like a 10, 15 minute reset. Yeah. And their third game is like, close a couple of hinged doors, let the maglocks catch, and leap. <laughs> Have you encountered any of those games where, I've seen this done two ways. One is the reversible rooms. So one team goes through and when they escape, the next team can go in immediately because they will just reverse the room. The room can be played forwards or backwards. So one team resets it for the other team by playing it. It's a super complicated design. But the other one I saw, which just cracked me up was we had to break into like an art exhibit and steal a portrait or something and they created this arbitrary point system they're like you know here's our high scores of the most points ever how do you get points by when you leave making the room look as much as possible like it looked when you got there so that the police couldn't tell anyone had come in that's brilliant <laughs> it was amazing it was amazing we spent 20 minutes resetting the room for them to earn these stupid points that you know who the hell cares <laughs> charge them to, we're gonna charge them to reset the room <sighs> it was amazing we've definitely played five wits which has the a and b states where when you solve it one way you set it to yeah, the, right. the the start point for the b state and then we also played a game in france where we were told explicitly that we were investigating a serial killer who had a photographic memory and anything <laughs> we moved had to be put back exactly where we found it Amazing. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. That's so good. That's so good. And that comes with a level from a level of maturity, right? Like they're they're figuring out the art form. Anything can be done if there's a narrative reason for it, right? You can make the players basically do anything for you. Yep. Yep. Justify whatever you're doing. And I will suspend my disbelief. You know, as long as you keep abiding by your own rules, I'm right there with you, buddy. Yep. I wholeheartedly agree. I get very frustrated when that element is just phoned in, when they're just not willing to take the extra time to write in the story. When they give you arbitrary rules without any narrative justification, I like I just I start to bristle. It's so frustrating. Speaking of emotional reactions, 
when you play games of really any kind, do you have a favorite feeling that you like a game to instill? Is there like an emotional button that every time it gets pushed, you're like, yes, do do more of that? The easiest way for me to describe it is games that make me feel like an extraordinary version of myself. It's a tough emotion to pull out because I don't want to feel like I, I hate dressing up. I don't want to feel like a character. I want to feel like it's me, but I, I suddenly realize I can do something that a second ago I didn't know I could do. There was uh, one of my favorite versions of that, the palace rooms in San Francisco. They have a gag in one of their rooms where, uh, oh, how do I do this without spoil? I don't even want to have it here. I haven't played it. Okay, so I think this is in the Edison room. I felt like, like I had unlocked a magical world and I was responsible for it. I rode that high for the next 40 minutes of that room not because the puzzle was particularly clever, although it was, and not because the room was meticulously dressed, because it was, but because it was impossible. The thing that happened was not possible, and I was responsible for it, and I suddenly became extraordinary. And every time I get that feeling, I just, I cannot help but, but rave about that room. I know the moment, and it is as magical as you say. It's the first time you open the refrigerator door and there's another room behind it. You know what right. I mean? Like, right. I've always wanted to be that person that discovered the wardrobe that leads to Narnia. In rooms that can deliver that, you are special. You did this thing. You are capable of something that you didn't know you were capable of until this moment. That's why I go to Room Escapes. Wow factor. Yeah, but linked to your own facility. I love it when it's, as you say, when it's grounded. I always have a hard time accepting when we're told that the world is about to end and me and my friends are the only people who can stop it. <laughs> yep. My ego is just not big enough to accept that. Totally agree. That statement feels to me like putting on a costume and I don't want to put on that costume. If you're enjoying this podcast, you should join our Patreon. Some of the perks include a patrons-only Discord and exclusive bonus podcast content. Every podcast will have a companion after show where David and I talk about the interview we just recorded, as well as chat more casually about games we've been playing, industry news, and, well, whatever we feel like, really. You can get access to this bonus content for only $5 a month, and a lot of times the after show is even longer than our interviews. If you are already a patron of Room Escape Artists, you'll automatically have access to this bonus content. We've also got something really fun planned for the $15 level, a monthly play-along. Every month, we'll pick a game for everyone to play. David and I will record our post-game thoughts, analysis, and discussion with spoilers. Because a lot of times, we want to talk about the games, but it's so difficult to have meaningful discussion without being able to talk about the cool parts, uh, how the puzzle was solved, etc. So that's why we decided to start this level. Make sure you've played the game before listening, and we can spoil to our heart's content. Now, this content will be exclusive to $15 level backers. We've got higher tiers as well, and we want to give a special shout out. Thank you to Ben Rosner. Brian Ressler, Dan Egnor, David Longley, Nick Moran, Omar Aru, Rini Soret, Richard Burns, and Byron Delmonico, Paula Swan, Rex Miller, Scott Olson, Breakout Games, Derek Tam, and Terry 
Pettigrew Rollapp. None of this work would have been possible without the support of all of our incredible patrons and the community at large. Thank you. So if you like what we're doing and you want to support our mission of creating a global community of escape room and immersive gaming enthusiasts, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash room escape artist. Let's talk a little bit about Exploding Kittens. Matthew Inman of The Oatmeal is a viral content machine. What's the most unexpected thing that has emerged as a result of the magnifying effect that he brings to pretty much everything he touches? It's worth saying that Matthew Inman is brilliant and amazing and my business partner at Exploding Kittens. And I learn more from that guy every day than anyone has a right to learn. He understands audiences and the delivery of content to those audiences truly better than anyone on the planet. Having met everyone on the planet, I can make this statement accurately. He does this really incredible thing. I first realized it when we started our first Kickstarter campaign. We were trying to raise $10,000 for Exploding Kittens. He posted about it on the oatmeal. He said, this is my first card game. Come check it out. And we hit that $10,000 mark in seven minutes. And we had a million dollars in about seven hours. And all of that is because of the oatmeal, is because he has spent his professional career earning the trust of that audience. And when he says, I'm doing a thing, you'll like it. They say, here's our money. And it's it's crazy. Like I, I've never seen anything like that. He has earned that reputation and he continues to defend that reputation every day. So you ask what's like the most unexpected side effect or the most unexpected thing that I've seen him perform. It's all of it. It's It's every day he will look at a product and say, people will like this. They will not like that. When I came to him with Exploding Kittens, it wasn't called Exploding Kittens. It was called Bomb Squad. He looked at that game and he said, I would really like to be your partner in this. This game is insanely fun, but we have to change the name from Bomb Squad. It's too obvious. The game was essentially Russian roulette with a deck of cards. There were a few bombs in it and they would explode. He said, it's too obvious that you're scared of a bomb. Of course you're scared of a bomb. What people will really like is instead, the thing you fear most should be this cute, adorable, fuzzy little kitten, and let's call it Exploding Kittens instead. That was like the first sentence he muttered about the game. Everything since then has been equally profound as he he just understands what people like, how they will like it, when they will like it, and massively importantly, what they will not like. I just got a new kitten, and I can attest that I will come back into the room and it is literally like a bomb went off in my living room. Like everything is overturned. <laughs> so that, that also makes a lot of sense to me as well. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So were you guys friends before you brought this project, before you became business partners? Is that how this partnership came about? We actually met through a mutual friend, another guy named Matt, Matt Harding. He's more commonly known as Dancing Matt. He's the guy who dances badly at you know hundreds or thousands of locations all over the world. He literally travels around the world dancing as poorly as possible, hopping up and down, splicing them all together. And he was one of the very first videos to ever go viral on YouTube. Yes, I remember. 
I actually traveled around with him for a few years, filming him doing this crazy thing. And he was also friends with Matt Inman. And so uh, he just introduced us. You were involved with so many projects, like so many cool projects. <laughs> uh, I really like projects. I, more importantly, I really like creative people. And the idea that I get to contribute and work with them is the thing I always seek out. Speaking of cool projects that I did not know you were involved in, I did not know that you worked on Survivor. I believe Survivor is the best show on television. And I have thought that since the very first season, I've watched all of it. You and I have this mutual friend, Miles Nye, who I believe you're going to be speaking to. He is one of the challenge designers for Survivor. And we had done a bunch of escape rooms together. Escape rooms, the great unifying factor in all things. I asked him if he could introduce me to the challenge design team, and they did. We just hit it off. And I started out just working on a few challenges with them for just a few days. And then uh, I left a copy of Exploding Kittens in the design room. A few days later, I got a call from a guy whose voice sounded vaguely familiar, but I couldn't quite place it. And he said, hey, I just found this uh, copy of Exploding Kittens in the design room, and I really need one for my kids, but I can't get one fast enough. Do you have any extra copies that I could pick up somewhere? And at a about that moment, I realized I was speaking to Jeff Probst and he found Exploding Kittens and wanted a copy. And I said, hey, why don't you just come to my house? I got a copy here. And he came over and I gave him the copy and we just started talking and just immediately hit it off. It was kind of magical. And we started talking about Survivor. We started talking about game design. Since then, I really consider him one of my closest friends in the world. He's probably the smartest, most talented game designer on the planet, but he has no idea. He doesn't think of himself as a game designer. He has this crazy supernatural ability to look at other people's work and his own work as if he has never seen it before. And when he's able to do that, he can so quickly determine how to produce a thing properly, what elements need to be there, what elements can immediately be eliminated, how to deliver a complex narrative, a complex game structure. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like it. And he's so good at it and so humble at it and doesn't even realize he's doing it. We've become friends. I haven't worked on any more challenge designs, but I am very, very honored to say when he wants to work on new seasons, new giant themes for seasons, all the things that define what a season is and what differentiates it from other seasons. Jeff comes up with 100% of that stuff, but I'm so flattered to say he usually calls me to workshop it. Usually I can poke some holes or contribute some ideas and make his ideas, you know, maybe one or 2% better than he started with. So are you responsible for Edge of Extinction? <laughs> <laughs> I am responsible for having conversations with him about <laughs> the ideas that uh, he's very excited about. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to be life. careful. All I'm, all I'm trying to be careful of is like, this guy deserves more praise and more accolade than anyone else. So when you see like executive producer or host credit on a show, usually they're honestly not doing that much work on the actual structure of the game. Jeff is. He sits down and he writes and rewrites and thinks and agonizes over every single season in a way that I'm convinced nobody else in Hollywood is doing. I had no idea Jeff was this involved in the game design or, or production. I knew he had gained the title of executive producer, but I didn't know that it was really because he was that involved in the actual game design. 
I didn't know that either until meeting him. And the very first time he sent me a document, he's like, hey, I'm thinking of this thing for the next season. What do you think? And at first I was like, what do you mean you're thinking of a thing? Don't you, aren't there other people? You're, you're the host. What, why are you thinking of this thing? And then in reading through it, I realized, oh my God, he does this for every season. They're all his. Like that's where they're born. Around which season did you start on? I'm really bad with associating titles with things. I won't be able to tell you like the name of the season, but I will tell you it's whatever season number was two seasons out six years ago. So around like late 20s? That sounds right. I can't fact check that right now, but it's always weird because whatever season is currently on the air, he's working on the one two seasons later. So it's always a little bit confusing. Right, right. And that's all extra messed up right now. Oh yeah, <laughs> so messed up. Thanks, COVID. David and I met because David is also a big Survivor fan as well. So it's I met PG because I was interviewing her on the No Presenium podcast about Survivor as an immersive experience. Oh, I love that. That's so good. I've always called Survivor the best immersive game in the world. I love that. I'm so obsessed with that game. It's I mean, honestly, PG, it's very I don't know how well I'm doing at hiding it, but it is a very, very big fanboy moment for me to get to talk to you. <laughs> this is this is such an honor. I feel the same way. <laughs> it's funny, like we know we have so many mutual friends in common. Um, it's funny that you bring up Miles. Miles took me to my first escape room, and I had met him also because of the Survivor connection. Uh, and he's actually going to be our second guest on this podcast, so you guys should stay tuned for that as well. What is it that you love about Survivor? There's an underlying thread behind everything I've ever designed. Every every design I've ever been passionate about, every game I've ever enjoyed playing, every game I've ever enjoyed building. The underlying thread is none of those games are entertaining. All of those games are just tool sets to make the players entertaining. To me, most of that concept was born in Survivor. Survivor is a very, very simple format. Without all the twists and turns, you can pitch the, the core game in like one or two sentences. But those one or two sentences are the most direct, effective mechanism for converting people into entertainment that I think anyone has ever come up with. The game itself is not entertaining. It's not designed to be entertaining. The game itself is just a tool set for the contestants to become entertaining. I am obsessed with that. I, I just I think every time a new season comes out and they, they play with that concept a little bit more, twist it just a little bit farther, it always yields the most incredible narratives. And I, I learn a little bit about humanity. I learn a little bit about game design. And I learn a little bit about the nature of relationships. Ah, yeah, I'm just obsessed with that. I like the twist because it really forces the players to adapt to new situations. Because every season we'll see somebody brilliant take the basic premise and put a twist on it, right? And somehow break yeah. the game. And so yeah. twists are always the producer's response to, okay, this person broke the game this way. So now we're going to break it back in return. <laughs> and see how somebody else deals with this. And it does feel like a testament to like the human spirit of how somebody deals with it. You know, I've said this a lot on other podcasts where people are like, don't you feel like it's unfair that you got split onto this tribe and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but life is unfair. Some people <laughs> are able to make this work. And so th those are the moments that, that we're looking for. In yeah. It's an inherently unfair game and it's unfair in different ways at different points for different people. Totally agree. The twist that I badly want to see at this point is no twist, no advantages, but 
not telling them that because <laughs> I met a puzzle designer, Eric Harshberger. He used to create Eric's Puzzle Party, which was this amazing puzzle hunt in Auburn, Alabama. We were having dinner with him after we had played, and he had said to me that he never designs with red herrings hmm. because the players will always invent their own red herrings. I would love to see a season where at this point, everyone playing Survivor is, is a Survivor aficionado. They all know the history. They all know what's going on. They're all there to play, unlike in some of the past seasons. Interesting. And they all know what to expect. So if you can subvert their expectations by completely removing a layer of the game that they will continue to assume is there right up until the bitter end. <laughs> That's really clever. I love that idea. Mean trick. I mean, on Cambodia, do you guys know how many hours I spent looking for this stupid idol only to find out later that they were all hidden at challenges? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so good. I think there's something very magical about that sort of homage to, to the basics and saying the complicating factor is going to be people's assumptions that there are complications. That's really neat. Thank you. Lisa and I have been rewatching Survivor from season one through quarantine. This has been our, like, our decompression. One of the things that we noticed watching these all in rapid succession is this progression from in the early seasons, there were only a handful of people who were truly playing to win. There are a lot of people there for a lot of different reasons. But as you start to get into the, to the late 20s and 30s, basically everyone is there to play. And the outliers are the people who are like just there for a good time and an adventure. The most recent seasons, like basically everyone is out for blood. Yep. So survivors become so self-referential and so self-aware that by having a clean season without the advantages, it will have ripple effects in the way that people play the game in the future by introducing the idea that there may not be twists, which will then create new opportunities to add all sorts of other layers to the game. I totally agree. I, I, I think there's something so, so smart about that. And of course, now that you've said that out loud, probably can't do it, but... I love the notion. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Okay, Alon, thank you so much. I, I want to conclude with one last question for you, which is Exploding Kittens is growing by leaps and bounds and doing all sorts of cool things. What's an upcoming project that you can talk about and that you're really excited about? What we've done, we just released a new game that's called A Game of Cat and Mouth. And it's a two-player game designed entirely in quarantine for people in quarantine. I'm really proud of it. The, the premise of the game is, is so simple. It's basically head-to-head -head competitive pinball played with slingshots. Yeah, you have to see it to believe it. It's so beautiful. It was really a beast to, to create, especially because we had to do the entire thing virtually. Just, it's so gorgeous. It's so much fun. And I say it's designed for people in quarantine. It's a two-player game. It's uh, four minutes long, start to finish. Uh, sit down with anybody in your house and you will... I guarantee by the end of this game, you will be screaming and shouting and jumping out of your chair. You will have so much adrenaline. It will put you in such a good mood because that's what it was designed to do, because that's exactly the problem we're all struggling with. And one of the advantages of running a games company is you can say, I'm having this problem. I'm going to use games to solve it. And so we did. I can't wait to play. That sounds super fun. Seriously. Thank you so much, Alan. The Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming reviews, commentary, tips for players, tips for designers, tours, game jams, and conventions. Thanks again to our guest, Alan. 
you have been a wonderful guinea pig. <laughs> My favorite thing to be. <laughs> I could have talked to you for hours and hours. This was honestly a fascinating conversation. So thank you so much for coming on here with us. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. 